Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Juliana. And I'm Sophia. And today we're going to be talking about subsidiarity. Nice. I think this is our first episode on a principle of Catholic social teaching. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited for this episode. Me too. And I think this principle in particular is so relevant to the issues that we're grappling with, especially in the United States on the national social and political scene, Mm -hmm. but also has implications all over the world. So I think this is a good place to start. I agree. So we've mentioned that subsidiarity is a principle of Catholic social teaching, but it occurs to me that maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with CST of how it came about and what it contains. So what is Catholic social teaching? Catholic social teaching is a set of principles offered by the church for how societies should be organized. And Catholic social teaching has at its roots the teachings of Christ. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament call on us to promote the vision of a just society. Mm -hmm. And CST helps the church in applying those same teachings in every age to the specific cultural, social, political problems that arise in that age. Well put. Yeah. I think it, as you said, not only comes from Christ's teachings, but is a very natural expression of faith in him. The desire to transform the culture around us and the communities that we live in to Mm -hmm. reflect everything that he says about the dignity of each person and the need to care for the poor and the vulnerable and the fact that all of us are made for freedom and for communion. So I think it's honestly, I love Catholic social teaching. I think it's something that Catholics and non-Catholics alike can really find inspiration in and challenge and a whole lot of beauty. I agree. Maybe another helpful aspect of Catholic social teaching to point out is its level of generality. The church respects the diversity, the beautiful and rich diversity of different cultures and different ages. And so her teachings do not prescribe one course of action when there are numerous morally good opportunities, but rather, as the catechism says, the teaching proposes principles for reflection, criteria for judgment, and guidelines for action. Ooh, I like that. Principles, criteria, and guidelines. I think that's a really good way of seeing how the Catholic Church is Catholic. Catholic means universal, and here we really get a sense for the fact that The truth is one, but according to the time and place in which God's people exist, it will take on a different aspect and will be manifest in different concrete forms. How far does Catholic social teaching date back? Like, what are the primary documents that historically gave rise to this as a body of teaching of the church? So I would point out that the church has always been involved and vocal in every aspect of society, seeking to be, you know, a guiding light, a beacon of truth for the whole world. Mm -hmm. But many principles of the specific principles of Catholic social teaching that we're talking about today, including subsidiarity, have their origins in the 19th century and the early 20th century with a series of encyclicals that were written in the context of 
a rapidly changing world. On the one hand, there was the rise of communist ideology and totalitarian regimes. And on the other, there was this emergence of unfettered capitalism and the various concerns that that was raising for the dignity of the human person and the dignity of work. Thank you. That's helpful. And you're so right. Like this history goes back to the very first centuries. I always think of the fact that infanticide used to be practiced in ancient Rome and the Christians were countercultural in that they upheld the value of human life and saved infants that were abandoned to be, you know, starved to death or eaten alive. But you're right that this this develops because Christ sent the advocate to bring us to the fullness of truth. This unfolds over time and responds to the distinctive challenges and difficulties that the church encounters. Mm -hmm. So this is one really beautiful place where I see that Christ's promise is true when he said, I will not leave you orphans. You know, I am always present with my church. And I think that Catholic social teaching is one way that we see that Christ continues to guide us. It's him who's helping us respond to, as you pointed out, both communist ideology and also the challenges of capitalism and individualism. So yeah, so I I definitely see Catholic social teaching in general, but subsidiarity in particular as an invitation from Christ himself, which I think means we need to take it seriously. I mean, I definitely need to take it more seriously than I do. Yeah, completely. And I like what you said about Catholic social teaching as evidence of Christ's promise to send us the Holy Spirit and to accompany us. And I would say it also shows us, especially when we see the problems that these teachings are responding to, it shows us how much we need that ongoing help of the Holy Spirit working through the church to help us interpret the signs of the times because there really are such different problems and questions and opportunities posed by each era of human history. The truth is one, but we have to continue to have that revealed to us through our specific circumstances. Mm -hmm. So in this dynamic, one thing that is really comforting for me is that no matter how much our social and political and economic circumstances change over time, or as you mentioned, in different regions throughout the world, one thing is always true. And this is the fact that the human person is made for God and human society is made for the common good. Um, And so this is the truth that lies at the foundation of Catholic social teaching, that because the human person is made in the image and likeness of God, all of society and all of its governance should be ordered to those conditions that allow people to reach their fulfillment, their true fulfillment. Exactly. And in that process of promoting human flourishing, the church teaches that government is not a necessary evil, but rather can and should have a positive role in society. Right. This within Christian denominations is not always the teaching that we find, but the Catholic Church challenges states as Pope Pius XI, his encyclical in the 40th year, says states have the responsibility and the privilege to work with individuals and all sorts of civil institutions and churches to promote these conditions of human flourishing, he says, as occasion requires and as necessity demands. That's a great line. This is super tricky, though. I think one of the reasons we come across sort of this desire to just minimize 
the state and see government as a necessary evil is because it's a heck of a lot easier if you can just say, all right, my principle is the least state intervention possible, the happier I am. Um, And I think this is where the principle of subsidiarity comes in because we need a criterion to adjudicate when state intervention is necessary to promote human flourishing. Not just when, but when and how and who, like what level of the state are we talking about? Um, Because as we've seen, I mean, I don't think anyone needs us to give examples, as we've seen time and time again, but particularly in the 20th century, the state can abuse human flourishing like none other. And so, yeah, so I think here we see our need for subsidiarity. Yeah, exactly. And to that end, what is the principle that the church proposes to us? So subsidiarity has two parts, two criteria according to which we can decide when states should act for the common good. First, decisions should be made at the lowest level possible. And second, decisions should be made at the highest level necessary. So the first part, this is more well known, and it's also called the principle of devolution. It's this idea that what an individual can do, groups shouldn't take over. And what social groups can do, the state shouldn't take over. And what local government can do, the national government shouldn't take over. So that's, you know, that's intuitive. But there's also this second part that I think can be easily forgotten, which is that decisions should be made at the highest level necessary. So higher levels of governance and of society actually have a responsibility to intervene when the human flourishing of an individual or a family or members of society, when that's at stake and individual action isn't enough to address it. That's a really great overview. And I think as to the second principle, to make this a little more concrete, when would we need higher orders of society to step in? This could be an area where there's a need for or a benefit from uniformity in law, or perhaps when resources are needed on a larger scale, or when there's an abuse of power at the lower order, which gives rise to the need for a higher organization that can step in with the weight of authority and the power to correct this abuse. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And well, it brings to mind, for instance, the genocide of Uyghur Muslims that's happening right now in China. The principle of subsidiarity can help us make sense of the fact that higher levels of governance and international organizations have a responsibility to step in and intervene. Yeah, or here in the U.S., the evil of slavery and the increased power that the federal government needed to take on during the Reconstruction to really coerce the southern states to begin to reform their societies for good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there really is this tension, like in most places in Catholicism, there's this both and. Mm-hmm. It's a paradox, but I think it's clearly pointing to the fact that we as Catholics do not belong to the world, that we cannot blindly adhere to certain political or ideological categories, because the truth is other. And it can be hard. I mean, I know I feel politically homeless, like, all the time. But but it's so much more beautiful because things like the principle of subsidiarity, which honestly challenge both the left and the right of the political spectrum, principles like subsidiarity are so beautiful and help us make sense of 
conflicts that otherwise just seem like they need to be answered with compromise. Like I need to compromise on something if I'm going to work my way out of this. Mm-hmm. If I don't, if I can't embrace the paradox that the Catholic Church teaches us to accept. Absolutely. I think that what you're making here is a really important point because sometimes in political discussions, we hear the language of Catholic social teaching in general and subsidiarity in particular bleed into partisan American politics. Mm. But this is, as you were saying, a distortion and a reduction because subsidiarity goes both ways. And not only that, but subsidiarity, it applies to every human society and political organization, not just in our sphere of, of 21st century American politics, which is It's only one part of the picture, right? It's so much broader than that. Mm -hmm. All of us should feel challenged by this. So, but what you're saying implicit in that is that, that there's a lot at stake in this principle. If it is of universal applicability, if we do all have the responsibility to allow it to form our hearts, why is that true? You know, what's at stake in the principle of subsidiarity? There's absolutely a lot at stake. On the one hand, there's, the freedom of the human person and the freedom of associations to organize and to believe and to carry out their work as they see best. Mm -hmm. But there's also the fundamental dignity of the human person, a violation of which cries out for justice. Right, exactly. So what's at stake here is this conception of the human person as both free, but also interdependent and made for communion and community. And here, I really like this quote from Pope Benedict XVI. He says in Caritas and Veritate, Subsidiarity recognizes in the person a subject who is always capable of giving something to others. That's the view of the person that subsidiarity offers, that I'm, I can always give something to society. And so I need to have the freedom to do that. But also, I need to be given the conditions under which I can express this need of my heart to be given as a gift to others. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful quote. And I think that it really accurately describes something that's missing. Because what the human person can give is reduced to productivity while minimizing the broader spiritual, mental, emotional needs that we have, the critical contributions of the person in his or her own family and the importance of the family to building up society. Um, there's, there's so much more to the human person and what he or she can offer the world than prominent modern ideologies presume. That's an excellent point. And I think gets to an important aspect of subsidiarity that maybe we've left implicit so far, but we should probably make explicit, which is that a lot of the initiative and the action toward the common good comes not in the first place from the individual or from the state, but through intermediate societies. So you mentioned the family. The family's a really important one, but so are churches and nonprofit organizations and neighborhoods associations of human beings that lie in between the individual and the state. Um, And I think that this, well, if anyone's read Putnam's Bowling Alone, they'll know that this is something that has dramatically reduced, fallen away in 
at least American culture, over the last 70 years. But it's something so essential to the common good. Yeah, absolutely. And these intermediate institutions have fallen away, not only in terms of their actual existence, but also in terms of our focus. Our focus has shifted. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the U.S., it's so clear that we have an excessive, almost exclusive focus on the federal government and what happens in the political branches and in the federal judiciary at the expense of the state and local equivalents, which are doing just as important work in terms of influencing our day-to-day lives. We see the same dynamic in other areas of our lives, too. We focus on international injustices over the injustices in our own country. And in as Catholics, I think it's really easy to focus exclusively on what happens at the Vatican at the expense of in our own diocese or at our own parish. Yes, yes. And again, we see the tension here that subsidiarity calls us out of individualism. But as you mentioned, not to treat this in the abstract, but to look around us exactly where we are. Here, I'm reminded always of this line from Father Giussani. He says that God comes to us in il tempo e il tempio, in time and in the temple. So in time and space. He doesn't come to us just in the silence of our own minds, but he also doesn't just come to us in an abstract way in the course of human history. The incarnation happens in time and space. In my parish, as you mentioned, in my neighborhood, in my school. And it's useless to look for him at this broader abstract level and in the silence of my heart if I'm not also able to look for him in the details of my life and the companionship that I belong to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That describes really well what's at stake in our own personal lives. So where where else would you say that you see the need for subsidiarity in what other areas of our modern world? Well, I think one place that we really see the need for subsidiarity is global warming and environmental degradation. Each of us as individuals, each of us has the responsibility to reduce our carbon footprint and to care for the environment. But this is a problem that calls for higher levels of intervention, calls for government regulation and international collaboration and from the business side of things as well. And so I see sort of this collective failure to be stewards of the beautiful earth that God has given us as, yeah, a place that is crying out for the application of the principle of subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great example. I think in my own personal life, I've seen, as I think back to high school in particular, but also college, I th- want to touch on a point that you made in passing that we have a tendency to focus on international aid at the expense of involvement in our local communities. I think that is so true and so important to talk about that we have this temptation to to look at the problems of others, you know, in part because of the wonderful photographs and journalism that raises awareness about injustices throughout the world. I do not want to minimize how important and, and what a beautiful opportunity for solidarity that is. But when it comes at the expense of care for your own community and the suffering in your midst, I think that that's a real danger to, again, abstracting the presence of Christ. Personally, I've fallen into this. (laughs) 
it's one of the things that inspired me to go down to Paraguay, as I mentioned, I think on a, a recent episode, to go down to Paraguay to volunteer for a summer after my first year of college. And while I wouldn't change anything in the world about my experience or my choice, it was while I was there that I realized not only, of course, I, I was basically useless to them, but I also realized that I was ignoring the very same communities in South Bend where I, you know, born and raised, went to college. Like, these are the people that I belong to if I belong to anyone. And so I came home with, you know, a contrite heart, um, but also inspired to get involved in local organizations in a new way. If I am to, as the Gospel of Matthew says, do for the least of his brothers and sisters what I would do for Christ, that those include the people right next to me. And in fact, they have priority over my heart when it comes to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you raised that because it is such a common temptation and reality in each of our lives, surely in my own. The idea that the suffering is other, it's elsewhere. And I think that this can often become an excuse. The suffering is over there, so I can't do anything about it. And I just throw up my hands and lament how unjust it is without taking action. And mm. I also think it's important what you said about the local work is not at the expense of the work abroad. We're not saying that is at all a bad thing. Some people are called to that. It's just a lot of the times more difficult and less accessible to us. And as I said, can be too easily used as an excuse. It reminds me of what Mother Teresa said. There's a popular quote often attributed to Mother Teresa that says something like, if you want world peace, go home and love your family. And in doing further research, I learned that that quote is actually misattributed. She never said that. How she, did say, <laughs> she did say something very similar, which was, you know, as you start to love, you start in your own home and then you go to your next door neighbor and then you go to the country you live and then you go to the whole world. And she often encountered this dynamic of people really wanting to help her mission in Calcutta and recognizing the beauty of it and asking her how she could help. And she would... She would ask them, for example, if they knew their neighbor. She would point them to the importance of starting with what they can change every single day, every single moment you can love your family. Mm -hmm. Not every single day and every single moment you can go help the sisters in Calcutta. They're both important avenues of work, but that's where we can have the biggest impact realistically. Wow. So provocative and so challenging because... As I think about my, to go back to our episode on unfulfilled desires, as I think about my desire to preach the gospel, my desire to work for justice, my desire to love people in a radical way, I mean, these things are huge. And so often I can look at them and say, Lord, I'm a little PhD student in Cambridge. What can I do? You know? But it's true. There are people in my own house, in my own unit, in my own parish who may be suffering or maybe wanting someone to pray with or maybe needing someone to share a meal with. You know, this is this is the place where my love starts, you know, at this 
the common good is born first at this lowest level, that I have a responsibility to start at this lowest level. And in fact, that that's the answer to my desire. That's the path. And maybe, you know, one day like Mother Teresa, I will be a missionary. But the only possible way that Christ could lead me down that road is if in loving the people around me and working for their good, that grows into something more that he has in mind. Um, So I think that she, yeah, she shows us not just our responsibility, but also the path to the realization of our desires. Yeah, absolutely. I think upon reflection of the family life, I think this is another really good way that we have all already encountered the need for subsidiarity and exploring it further can kind of help us understand these two principles. Yes. So so for example, in the family, we learn the utmost respect and reverence for the spousal relationship or for the parent-child relationship and that boundaries that that intimate relationship implies for people outside the family. But we also, it's so clear that families inevitably will need help, for example, from their communities, from their parishes. Think about when a new baby is born and the whole community helps out with bringing the family meals and helping them with chores or childcare. But we also see sometimes the need for government intervention, for example, to prevent pregnancy discrimination in the workplace. Mm -hmm. That's not something a family can do. That's not something even a community can do. We need that higher authority in order to help the family flourish. So I think that that would be, you know, another example that we see the value of subsidiarity very tangibly in our own lives. That's a beautiful and very accessible example. And I think to go back to our point about responsibility, it also shows us exactly how and where we can act to support the common good. I think another place that subsidiarity and action has become really clear in my life is my belonging to communion and liberation to CL Mm -hmm. precisely because it shows me that my faith is lived in relationship with a community, a companionship that I belong to and have responsibilities to. And it's a, as I was saying before, it's a microcosm of the church. It's a place where God dwells in time and space with me. And so, you know, even when it's not the easiest for me, I do my best to be faithful to this community. Again, both out of a recognition that my faith is not just an individualized thing, but also that it's not something abstract, that the church is not something abstract. Absolutely. And I think this example that you're giving also beautifully points us to that second aspect of subsidiarity, the need for a higher order when necessary, because Certain things, as important as our individual faith lives are and our experience in the movement, certain things must be established and promulgated church-wide, especially, for example, matters of doctrine. For questions regarding the truth of what we believe, there's no option but to be unified. Because if we're not unified, somebody is wrong. And to be wrong in a matter of faith is a very grave problem. And truth Mm -hmm. cannot be fragmented. And so here we see the beautiful gift that we have. Yes, movements are, as Giustani puts it, expressions of the Holy Spirit in the church. And he says, he gives the analogy of a diamond where each angle reflects a different facet of the diamond. So in this way, each movement reflects a different aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit. But Mm. the Holy Spirit also works through this great gift of apostolic succession. 
that Christ established uh, in order to keep his church unified in truth. I love that analogy of the diamond. It's a thought-provoking one. I do think that CL, among charisms, teaches our hearts to obey the principle of subsidiarity in a really powerful way. Giussani was a huge fan, of course, of subsidiarity, and especially in Italy, where CL has been particularly active in political and social life, it's really guided a lot of the initiatives of the movement. Um, And we won't get into details here, but when I think about why, I think it comes down to the fact that through the church and through the movement of CL, we're educated to perceive in everyone a set of desires, desire for the infinite, desire for truth, desire for flourishing, and also this irreducible freedom that has been given to us so that we might recognize and say yes to our destiny in God. And so I think when you're educated to look at other people in this way, it just comes more naturally to then say, I need to protect this. I need to work for the conditions where you and I can both find more readily an answer to our desire, where our freedom is more readily respected, where the fact that you and I belong to one another, that we're interdependent, that this is reflected in the very way that society is organized. Mm -hmm. That's a really powerful reflection. I would say also in the movement, there is such an awareness that in our companionship, we have encountered Christ and we continue to encounter Christ. And this points to, I mean, as you were saying, the great respect that God has for human freedom, but also the fact that we are made for companionship. God didn't create us to be solitary. As he said in Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. And so we live our faith together, and that bleeds into how we engage with the outer world precisely because we are social beings, and it is in relationship with each other that we live fully, that we encounter Christ, and that we truly develop our potential. Beautiful, right. So it's it's our faith that drives us to create and respect and engage in all these different levels of society. Yeah, each according to their proper place. Well, as we near the end of our episode, what are some places that you are trying to implement the principle of subsidiarity in the way that you live your life? Are there any things that come to mind? Yeah, so I would first caveat my experience by saying that I so overcorrect, as I was saying, on the second part of the principle, the highest level necessary part, that most of the work in my own life is on the first part, bringing down my focus to lower levels in order to rebalance my life. Mm. But that might not be true for everyone. Fair. And the ways I'm doing this are first to support local businesses or small businesses, like not order so much from Amazon and shift my purchasing dollars as an expression of my values to more ethically run businesses, smaller businesses, family-owned businesses. I recognize that these options are often more expensive and so um, that's not always possible and it's indeed a privilege to be able to do that, but where it makes financial sense for my family, it's something that I'm trying to pursue. I'm totally on board with that as well. Um, I think one of the things that I'm doing is trying to be 
faithful to a particular parish here in Cambridge. So even if the mass times are less convenient and the church is less beautiful compared to Our Lady and the English Martyrs, I'm attending faithfully the Catholic chaplaincy just out of a recognition that this is where God has put me and I belong to these people, that I have a responsibility to share and receive from them the faith. And I think I heard in a talk by Charles Taylor the other day this term affinity parishes. He mentioned that Parishes are really becoming fragmented and different from one another on the basis of who attends them because people are flocking to people they might get along with better Mm -hmm. rather than the geographical proximity that was once historically the criterion for what parish you would attend. So that, that troubles me. And I think that we have a lot more thinking about how the parish will grow and change after the pandemic. But for now, I am doing my best to be faithful to the community that God's put me in. That's a really good example. Another thing I would say, and this is so simple, but getting to know people that are physically close to me in my neighborhood or close by that are from other walks of life, especially being at Stanford, as a default, I'm surrounded by people that are exactly like me. Mm -hmm. They're pursuing an advanced degree. They're going to be in similar professions as I will be, and they are roughly the same age. It's so easy to look around and see really a poverty of diversity. And so just getting to know people has been a really good way to broaden my world. And sometimes it's very humbling to realize that there are these people with super different life experiences that live down the street and that I didn't know existed Mm. before. So that has been something I'm definitely still very much working on this, especially because I'm an introvert. But the little work that I've done has been valuable. That's inspiring. I guess I'd conclude with one place that I'm trying to grow because I recognize I haven't been very faithful to my responsibility in this area, and that's supporting the families of my friends. It's been hard with the pandemic to, you know, not be able to offer babysitting and to share meals together, but I recognize that there are still things that I can do, whether that's praying for them, offering whatever listening ear I can, there are still these small domestic churches around me that I have a responsibility to care for and to build up as the image of the Holy Family of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I really think that as I've seen my friends start their own families, I've realized that (laughs) the experience of pregnancy and childbirth and raising young children is so beautiful and meaningful, but also so much more difficult than we might initially realize. We really can't do it alone and we're not meant to do it alone. And I agree with you, it's a, it's a challenge to truly accompany and support families in our community, but I think it is so important. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, maybe we could transition to our weekly challenge. Do you have something in mind for what our listeners and what I can do this week to implement the principle of subsidiarity in our lives. Yeah, so our weekly challenge, since we're in the season of Lent, during which we're called to engage in prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, I was thinking our weekly challenge could be to find a local organization doing charitable work in your community and donate as much as you feel called to 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 their cause even if it's $1 or $10 or $50, 
as a way to build up and support our local communities. That's great. And I think especially important because so many nonprofits and community organizations have really taken a hit due to the pandemic. So yeah, I'll definitely be taking you up on that weekly challenge. And our media recommendation? Yes. So for our media recommendation, I can't believe I've gone this long (laughs) in the podcast without mentioning Wendell Berry, my hero since high school. Uh, But our media recommendation for this week is his novel, Hannah Coulter. So it's written as a memoir of an old woman living in Port William, Kentucky. And essentially in this book, she's looking back on her life and reflecting on the places and the relationships that shaped it. It is just hauntingly beautiful, both because she has sort of this aching lament that I think teaches us a lot about grief, but also because more toward our topic today, she celebrates what she lived in a way that shows us what it means to belong to a land and belong to a community that inhabits that land. So I think it really pinpoints the intersection of freedom and belonging that we've been talking about today in relationship to subsidiarity. Beautiful. Excellent recommendation. I think that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode on subsidiarity. If you have any reactions or questions or topic suggestions, please reach out to us on our show's email or on Instagram. Yes, please write to us. And if I may ask, if you've enjoyed this podcast or learned something from it, we would be really grateful if you would go to Apple Podcasts and either leave us a review or a rating as this helps other people find us. As always, every resource that we've mentioned can be found in the show notes. We're so happy to have you with us and thank you for joining us on this journey. See you next week here on The Pilgrim Soul. 